really random. I got offered a job to develop Australia's first ever human-grade fish oil capsule out of salmon waste. G'day and welcome to the Farms Vice podcast with your host, Jack Creswell. Whether you farm it, service it, or just love it, this podcast is for you. We'll bring you the techniques and technologies you can implement into your day straight from the leaders and innovators themselves. Spread the Farms Vice so that we can reach more farmers right across Australia. Follow us on all of your socials at Farms Vice and let's get into this episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. For this episode, very exciting to have Will Bignall on from down in Tasmania. We haven't had too many Tassie farmers on, but we're welcoming more. So if you know one, let us know. But really keen to get into this conversation, and I think you might get a few key takeaways from it too that implement into your mindset or even onto your own farm. See what you can do. Pull some similarities out of this episode, but we'll leave it to Will on the episode. Let's get into it. G'day and welcome to the Funswise podcast. Will Bignall, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. If anyone follows him, he's got a bit, few followers on there. Um, uh, just over 5,000 for Thorpe Farm. So, Will, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks very much for having me, Jack. Absolutely. So, tell the listeners where you're coming from because we don't always get people from your region. Uh, we'd love some more, but whereabouts are you from, Will? Yeah, so I'm at a place called Bothwell, which is in the middle of Tasmania uh, in the Highlands. So it might only be sort of 360 metres above sea level, but we stick our head up into the roaring 40s. So we don't get the buffer of uh, Western Australia and South Australia. So we get uh, sort of extreme temperatures from negative 12 right through to the 45 degree days straight off the desert. Um, and yeah, an interesting site. So I'm kind of halfway between Hobart and Launceston. And uh, it's... Yeah, long-held sort of farming country with uh, a mixture of irrigation for nearly 200 years and livestock and diversified cropping now. Yeah, beautiful. And to get stuck into it, your it says seventh generation on yep. your Instagram. That would be the longest, the most generations I've had on the podcast. That's a bit of a good stint there. Correct. Yeah, we've, um, we've been lucky in that regard, I suppose. It's... Uh, Next year will be our 200th year on the farm. So we, um, we've got the diary extracts of old Archibald McDowell turning up and talking about going across the square flats and sneaking his way around to, to his new land. Um, the, the district was set up quite well by the Scots. Yeah. So he was the guy, Captain Wood, was reading the shipping logs and saw this name and says, oh, do you know Robert McDowell? And he said, that's my brother. He said, oh, a bit of land up here. Why don't you come up and have a look about this bloke called Captain Socket was leaving. Um, yeah, so they came up, camped in a mud hut for three or four nights and then came onto the title, what was called Logan at the time. And yeah, we've been there ever since. So the, the current generation, the farm came through my grandmother's line. The Bignall family are actually in Hobart as dairy farmers uh, on the other side of the river, which is all now housing. The homestead's still there, but yeah, the, the cousins have gone down to the ocean, down at Rim Creek. And uh, yeah, we came up to Boston. My grandfather married a Campbell and she came with a few thousand acres and off they went and had a pretty aggressive career together farming, but yeah, did a lot. Unreal. And to hold that in the family, it's not an easy feat as well, like all the way through. The farm that you operate on to today, that's the one that you've carried for so long. Yeah, yep, yep. So I've got cousins all around me and through marriages and things, they've all shifted boundaries slightly and original titles and stuff have moved. But 
yeah, continuously farmed here as a as an entity. Apparently, we're one of the ten oldest businesses or something like that in Australia. Um, you know, like continuously operated, but that just means we've got a lot of junk lying around. There's been no clearing sales. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned on Instagram before you had like a bit of a walk through where people could come through and see the history of the region and was the homestead or one of the older homestead shearing sheds or something to do with that? Uh, yeah, we've got a lot of the old buildings are still there and then we've got a water mill on the property. So that was commissioned in 1823. So that's 200 years old this year. Right. Um, still has all its original working. So the town had its 200th anniversary and we opened the mill up and we used to run farm tours and quite a catering business and a few other things. And um, yeah, it took people back through the mill and showed them all the sites and, it's quite unique because it's it's all there. It hasn't been gutted and turned into a boutique hotel or a whiskey distillery or something. So yeah, it's um, pen setting. Um, now, good stuff. So let's get down to some agribusiness. We heard a bit of your family history and everything, but what's your background? You've actually got doctor in front of your name. I saw earlier. Yeah, yeah, got got heavily educated. Um, so I finished school up here in Bothwell and then down to boarding school. The the usual routine that everyone goes through. Had a year off after that, signed up for the Air Force, wanted to go flying crop dusters or fighter jets or something. I love my flying. Had not told my parents, kind of got caught out on that a bit by the Air Force recruiters. And I thought, oh, we better get into university. And I couldn't actually get into uni for ag science. So I did a chemistry bridging program through a good mentor and got into uni and did a Bachelor of Ag Science. Um, found it a challenging journey at first. So I worked out sort of how my brain works and some learning disability stuff. And then it kind of all clicked for me by the end of third year. So I got into fourth year and had a good run and kind of went from sort of failing to first-class honours. And then I came home, 07, uh, in, I came home in the millennium drought when I finished school. And then when I finished uni, I came home to another bloody drought. So it was uh, a challenge. I came home and then sort of wanted to do something with my head and the PhD option came up with some flexibility, started looking at muscle stuff and then ended up... Um, enhancing long-chain omega-3 by genetics and diet, so molecular genetics focus and oil chemistry, and built, bred my own nucleus flock, um, full data set, massive amount of data, um, and then got, you know, consolidated a huge amount of data and then did some powerful um, genetic-style um, analysis against it to try and find molecular markers to put long, like, boost the level of long-chain omega-3 in land, which is now you see on all our advertising as a dietary source, so my work sort of helped feed into that with the other organisations. Um, it was an interesting journey out of that. So that got me the PhD, probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I'm not a classic academic by any stretch. Uh, kind of like an ADHD mind where I can hyper-focus on things. Uh, but, yeah, if it's not interesting, oh, geez. <laughs> writing a paper or something's hard work. But, um, yeah, got, got through that and then kind of... Uh, my brother was killed right at the end of it and that kind of switched around my perspective a bit and I wanted to take some time out and do other things and use my brain a bit plus a bit of space on the farm between my dad and I and, you know, just focus on life. And I got offered a really random, I got offered a job to develop Australia's first ever human-grade fish oil capsule out of salmon waste. And I went to tour this factory and it was epic, like the smell and epic this is crap epic. hanging off. There was crap hanging off the roof and juice and oh, it was just rancid. And you're like, how the hell do you do this? 
And I got back in the car with this Greek guy, Jim, who was really good at negotiating. And he said, you can just, you can barrel them, mate. Like, you've got the skills to do that. That's a hardcore site. Just ask for this. I'll get you a good deal. And he did. And so I wanted to do a postdoc job. So I ended up starting that as a postdoctorate um, researcher in business sponsored by the federal government. And I came in to build this human-grade fish oil capsule. And then it it built out from there. It was a fascinating job using all my skill sets uh, from fabrication to oil chemistry to yeah, environmental remediation, the whole lot. It sort of, and I had seven years there and it was um, yeah, part-time. So I was still working on the farm all the time. Always, always had that bad addiction. <laughs> that was one of the things I was pointing out, like making fish oil capsules Sounds pretty romantic as another job um, coming from farming background and thinking, oh, that would be good just sitting in the shed or something. But when yeah. you have those sort of carcasses, the leftovers of what you're actually doing, a um, little less so on the romantic side. Oh, it's as bad as picking crutchings. You know, people look at you picking crutchings or something, oh, you do, yeah. God, you know. <laughs> it's that like, is. yeah, it didn't worry me too much. So it was, and I could see the value proposition and the sustainability question in it. You know, like, otherwise they were just dumping it. And I thought, well, that's such a waste. And uh, once I learned the long chain omega-3 story, which I knew from a PhD, that was a philosophical uh, proposition for me. Yep. So, you know, I could solve this. I had the skills to solve it. Numerous people had failed in front of me. And so I came in and, yeah, went from that into wastewater management, odour control, a bit of fisheries science. So the company also ran fishing vessels. Um, they bought the world's second biggest fishing trawler, bring that down to Australia to fish for small pelagics. Um, and that was a fascinating lesson in how science means nothing in politics. They, the minister looked us in the eye and just said, I don't care about the science. I care about public opinion. They don't like this. I'm stopping the boat. And by sunrise, they had. And it was, as a scientist, that fundamentally shook me to the core. And I thought as an ag scientist as well, you know, it's, it's scary that, that can happen on something that made sense on a sustainability point. And, um, yeah, the young guys that owned the boat, the Dutch boys, like I sat down and had dinner with them and said, why should I support this? You know, I said, generation farmer, why does this stack up? And they ran through it. And, yeah, once once I understood the global fisheries ecology and, and politics, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm all for this. And it's so much like farming, fishing. It's just primary production, same game. Yeah, I'm super keen to get some fishermen onto the podcast just to sort of open our worlds up but those similarities i'd imagine they'd be all there trying the supply chain of getting it through and seeing what you can do um yep. with what you did with the byproduct that's a very cool thing and that very ad be it different going into human consumption for fish oil capsules or like what they're doing to farmers doing milling their own sort of wheat uh, lentils and everything like that i think it's pretty cool that sort of circular economy what's happening what we can do with waste and there's a fair few things on farm that i i feel will change in i don't know next 10 20 years properly um in that sort of to create that circular economy yeah well, like for me silage wraps one of these ones that drives me that's, up that's what I was about to say. Just, so i did some math i got in with a mate we did some maths on it all worked out you know what we needed to make prudels out of it what other products we do at the same time, um, stripping copper wire back and that sort of stuff. Like the waste economy is epic once you get your eyes open to it and there's a lot of money in it. Um, the job offers I was turning down when I came back to farm full time, uh, it's like 
four times, five times what I take home now. <laughs> Why'd I do it? <laughs> I have asked that question a hell of a lot. Why did I come home? Like that's been probably one of my biggest challenges in, in returning to ag. Especially um, like coming from that sort of background as an now in academia for yourself, yeah. people must ask you that question a lot about why would you go back farming when farming is just like the people that don't really finish school, that's the perception of what they are. They wear flannels and uh, yeah. overalls, that sort of stuff. That's the image that we have and the nobody sort of stay farming. But a lot of us return to the farm, bring back your skills and what you've done. Um, whether you, well, you're still sort of in farming, dealing with fish oil and turning into capsules. What what did you learn uh, through your doctorate? Do you think that's been best for you on your family farm? Biggest thing I learned, a PhD is just a apprenticeship in science. So you really learn the craft of science. And it, the biggest thing it taught me to do was think. And it sounds so cheesy, but it taught me to look around me, look at everyone, analyse each person um, and bring and not be afraid to be wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, A, you learn to do a literature review, but then you can also look at what you do with a different set of eyes and, and once you add data to it and have the skills to quite powerfully analyse it, it all it all comes together. And people, some people say it's a waste that I came back to the farm and I'm like, no, I, I use that skill set every, nearly every day in this business um, and I love it. And you can make farming as hard and as silly and as complicated as you want or you can pull it back to bread and butter fundamentals and, you know, a few few mates, you know, one of them calls me a, a, a smart, dumb, such and such, whereas he's just a dumb, smart such and such. And, so, you know, he left uni and, and went home and he kicks massive goals farming. And, and that's the thing about ag, like the skill sets and how people piece it together is is fascinating and what makes it so, so good. You know, you can have guys that, yeah, no form, you know, very minimal formal education and you watch what they do and they read their landscape, their animals or their crops and just nail it. You know, they're on time, they're fundamentally just rock solid and that gives you 80% of the gains, I think. Yeah, certainly. I think I heard on another podcast today about there's innovation with ag tech and everything, but there's also innovation working with your environment um, to a certain way for those probably older ones being able to deal with the droughts, pretty innovative ways to bounce back from those and actually go through them um, for however long a period it is. Yeah, totally. Like, it flogged my old man. Um, we we're a heavily diversified business uh, through the, the 80s onwards. So we started deer farming in Australia. We had the first deer farm. We killed on farm, sold to restaurants direct, uh, you know, full vertical integration. That had an upfield scholarship. Travelled Europe with that, uh, came back, started. We started milking sheep, making cheese, sheep and goat cheese, um, growing strawberry runners. So we grew 2 million strawberry runners a year. On top of you know two thousand uh, twenty thousand odd sheep um, across a couple of you know across multiple sites across Tasmania in a big family partnership and uh, had that bread and butter element and yeah they those nineties you had to pull that belt in and, and weather it I think the biggest friction point now is is when the times are good rebuilding what we had from the, they sort of built in the seventies and eighties in those heydays yeah they it, it's a challenge and that's one of the things I battle now is, is rebuilding that asset base kind of into that bread and butter farm. So we were just so diversified, growing all these boutique vegetables and garlic and horseradish and 
all that sort of stuff and so hard to scale um and yeah I've, I'm, you know that's one thing i've done is contract back to a bread and butter style business simplifying it for sure so let's talk about your op- operation on farm what's it look like what do you have you've got a few interesting crops there you're running some sheep like keeping up with your stories is pretty fascinating because you're chopping change here left right and center yeah. You're just fixing your pivots wheel before again. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell us about the operation of it all. So right now I'm sort of scaling it back up into a sheep business. Um, I'm joining about 7,000 ewes a year. Out of that, there's 2,000 Merino ewes um, on a farm that I'm sort of leasing and buying at the moment back out of the family. Um, and so that's I'm phasing that out for simplicity. Um, I love wool and it breaks my heart to do it, but last year I didn't put merino rams out. So they're producing sort of a, I don't know, 16 and a half to 17 and a half micron fleece. Um, hard work to manage, put across a terminal sire, and then we're joining kind of 5,000 odd um, prime, prime lambs, so composite ewes to produce fat lambs. Um, so the lamb fattening business is kind of the core business. The bulk of that's done under irrigation with irrigated fodder crops. So I have about uh, 350 hectares to 400 hectares of irrigated country, um, mostly under pivots and then some flood irrigation as well. And the dry land pasture base, I've been working very hard to try and elevate that stocking rate. So I've kind of pushed, I've tripled the stocking rate of the property in the last six years, five years, um, focused on um, rebuilding that, um, you know, bringing down that cost of production. The, the variable cost is fine with me, but once I had the overheads in, I had a business that struggled. Um, and so trying to build systems around that. So the irrigation lambs are okay under pivots. It's dicey if you make money. Um, you know, in our benchmarking group, they just shake their head and say, why do you do it? But it's part of a rotation. So to make that irrigation country pay, um, for us, it's poppies are probably my apex crop. So where I can do, you know, three to maybe 5,000 if I get lucky a hectare gross, um, which helps pay for that capex. Um, and then we'll have a barley rotation in it and a fodder crop like a brassica, so rape uh, or those leafy turnips hybrids and some lucerne and clover, which are rest phases. So it's a four-year rotation under its irrigation block. And um, we have about 200 deer, fellow deer still, so we're down to about 100 running around now. Um, and they go, they're taken down to an abattoir and slaughtered for the local market. What sort of abattoir um, processes them? Uh, Dutan, it's called, down at Eagle Hawk Neck. So just a, they've got to have a set license for game killing. So kangaroo and, and yeah. uh, new and ostrich and all that sort of stuff. But deer are pretty easy to kill. They like a sheep. Uh, fallow deer is all allowed in Tasmania. So you only get like a 24, 25 kilo carcass. Price hasn't changed in the last twenty years. It's still five dollars fifty a kilo, yeah. and yeah, it's a beautiful meat. But the venison industry just has never really skyrocketed. Not like the kiwis. Yeah, but, um, yeah. We made a fortune selling breeding stock. That was a very profitable business. So um, in the, the land as well. The mainland as well selling. Yep. Uh, some, not much. So there's a lot of farms over there, but all around Tassie um, when the industry really kicked off. It was, you know, in the 90s and the heydays, it, it really pumped. And we bought farms off it and vehicles and school fees and, and all that jazz. And uh, this one, the farm was so complicated. Like, Dad and his brother, Peter, two very bright buggers, worked hard. And 
just it was everything to them and um i just can't do that like i don't even live on farm so yeah. i'm trying to trying to build this simplified business yeah focus on just just um, composite use so phase those merinos out i could rebuild it if i want to yeah. I, i'm really i'm gonna miss wool so much like a shearing you do all the composites and then the merinos come through the shed and you just oh <laughs> yeah like the on getting knocked off yeah and just the texture that's just soft wool and i mean you're a dorper man aren't you but yeah. like i like it. I, I love a lot of wool and i did a fair bit of work in the wool supply chain auction houses and stuff as an undergrad so just yeah that that stings but i need to yeah just wean one species of sheep and yeah focus so and that's pulled pulled the energy out of our business you know pulled the core, pulled the core out of it and there's so many things to do and look at in such a complicated business. It really pulls you down. Like you end up just going crisis management. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've worked really hard business-wise to strategize on bank from the buck. Yeah. And, um, yeah, been really diligent on that. And it's been a big turnaround and kind of clawing out of it now, clawing out of that CapEx phase and development phase. Big pivot being built at the moment, that'll come, so... Yeah, it's exciting times. <laughs> On the podcast, I always speak about like optimizing over sort of scaling, like buying more land in. Um, it sounds like you've sort of optimized the land that you're working with. How did you find optimizing it um, opposed to sort of scaling out? You wanted to simplify what was going on and control what you have currently. 340 yeah. years under pivots. Is that what led you to be able to increase your DSC? Uh, no, the biggest impact I had was changing the dry land footprint. So I think you know, two and a half thousand, three thousand hectares sort of dry land here as well in the on the farm. So that's the total footprint. Um, for me, it was my business ethos that really resonated was grow the weeds you've got, eat the weeds you've got, and then change the weeds you've got. So, and for me, it was after four droughts, it was all weeds, annuals. So fertiliser was the first thing. I went around the whole farm, soil tested, ranked every pasture on a made a scale for that with fences and pasture base aspect and soil and ranked them uh, and then went fencing. So my big thing I wanted to do was buy a post driver and just start eating the weeds you got. I mean, that's just fences that hold stock, allow that rotational phase. Um, and then, yeah, the final step is changing the weeds, which is pasture renovation and it's damn expensive. <laughs> But yeah, when you get those new pastures in, it was breaking the camel's back, knocking out those paddocks with a long fallow for a pasture establishment phase. That was the bit that created a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety because it's kind of, and it's like we need to break this cycle and then get it in. And the paddock that carried five sheep now carries 25. Yeah. And, you know, and there's hundreds of hectares like that now. And then, yeah, it's the same ute, the same fences, the same laneways. So bringing that overhead, um, Overhead cross burden down. There's big old farms have so much of it. <laughs> it's a bit of a game changer to go from five to twenty-five. Do you, would you say like that workload? Obviously, you're handling more sheep, but has the workload increased more on you? No, I think it's gotten better. I'm not, you know, I'm not dealing with um, head, you know, like rock star chefs. I dealt with them all the time growing up, selling them ingredients, and you know, that's cool and orders and, and all this boutique stuff that we were doing 
Tudor, so much brain space. Um, and then coming back and saying, right, I'm just going weenie. What do we need for the next five days? You know, it's a bit of landmarking gear for the ones we miss. Some eight in one, some multi min, and some dredge. And you're just into it. And that's it. Yeah. And you're not jumping back to go and dig orders for the, you know, the shuffle is disappearing. And then that brings in timeliness. Um, I think, you know, key profit driver is doing things on time. Um, you know, that. And I was always rushing or pushing or compromising to get things done. But it takes just takes years to break the back of that stuff. Um, I found that really hard. You, you work so hard and you just, like genetic gain and all that change, um, I've really worked hard on and it just takes so long to get it back. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's been a really interesting journey for me in that regard is, is looking at my business through benchmarking data in particular and then kind of really hyper-focusing and, and having the guts to really push on it, like really spend and, and go out on a limb to get there. Yeah, I think if you don't put yourself out there, go out on that limb, you probably won't get it. Um, get the results that you're sort of looking for. You can you can hang back so easily in farming and just sort of get the results that you've been getting and like that's steadily increasing as the markets increase as well, as the protein prices go up. Um, but if you really want to go for it, what you've been doing, you may have only gotten 10 if you didn't try, but now yeah. five DC, that's pretty unreal. Yeah, like it, well, that's the, you know, some of the jumps you can get. Um, but, the, you know, the whole, just lifting the whole farm DSE from, you know, two or three to, to nine, you know, that's just what you got to do. And but to do it and see those strategies, for me, the big thing has been um, lamb growth rates. I've been focusing on very heavily. So, you know, I was putting a lamb on a pivot circle with the same feed as everyone else around me. They've got sheep with high genetic merit and, and a few other management practices and they're doing, you know, 200 plus grams a day and I'm, I'm sitting at 50. But I actually didn't know that because I didn't have a sheep handler on a set of scales because... We can't afford that, you know, that ethos. You can't change what you don't measure. So that then dragged back my winter stocking rate was through the roof. Yeah. And, you know, you can look at it. And the classic for me was, you know, I'd, I'd halved my winter stocking rate, but um, my cost of production element that I pulled out on those late lambs, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars back into the business. Yeah. But it's taking the time to find that, believe in it, tease it out, and then push towards that goal, which is, yeah, it's been a key focus is that lamb growth rate trying to be empty. And it all, all went to shit last year, to be totally honest, that sun didn't come out, lambs didn't grow, and the damn things were still here in November. And it was, it's done. <laughs> yeah, but that's fine. Catching a good break now with the sun. How's the weather been down there? Has it been pretty wet for a tassie summer? It has been a really good summer. Um, Last year it was wet up until sort of late November, then it just stopped and the soil went to a brick and watched the mainland and you guys just got flogged. But that, that wet weather never pushed onto us. So we had a long dry autumn. But yeah, leading to this one big rain, touched up my poppies, you know, water logging's a big key issue for me. Uh, and then with cropping soils. And yeah, kind of got in, just kept tickling the rain along. The irrigation season's been pretty kind, not desperate like it has been in prior years. And so, yeah, we, crops look good and healthy and a lot of yield potential out there now, but as I've learned, you don't count it to the money's in the bank. <laughs> exactly. So to get all these jobs done, what sort of labour on the ground do you have? Who do you have to work with you? How's your... Um, yeah, labour's been a big thing for me. So traditionally, I've kind of had one guy or two. Trying to have two at the moment. I can't quite make three work. Um, 
balance the key pressure points with contractors. So landmark and contractor sewing time will bring in the guys with good gear and just ease that workload on us. Um, I try and do that where I can uh, to ensure timeliness. And yeah, just two guys full time. Um, weekend work's been a bit of a killer with irrigation, trying to get guys to commit to that. Yeah. that and, and you add in these linears that we've got two linears with dry swings and stupid walks and stuff that, you know, they can stand there on a Sunday morning for two hours and they can't get the ready light to come on and it can be something simple or something incredibly complicated. And so, yeah, I've phased them out of the business. Um, I've just put a big 13-span pivot into wipe two of them out. <laughs> just, just anchor to a lump of concrete. It can't go through the fence. It can't hit a tractor. It can't, you know, runs on electricity. And, um, you know, that's that's been hard. But, yeah, that weekend rostering system's been a challenge. I tend to work pretty hard. I don't live on farm. Yeah. So I live in Hobart an hour away. Um, so, yeah, I, I, when I'm here, I go hard and fast, which, yeah, with the people I've got around me, I'm very focused on safety. Um, I want people to be there tomorrow with all their fingers and toes and healthy, happy, and in 20 years' time, they aren't cursing working for me because they were doing manual, hard manual jobs. Um, had, a, had a pretty bad workplace scare two years ago with a young guy, you know, crushed and whatnot, and that, was, that mortified me. I'm pretty passionate about teaching and building people and, like I was a flying instructor and that sort of stuff in gliding and like like to build complex processes and help people get into it and do it and do it well and safely. But yeah, getting the paperwork side of that done was challenging for me. Um, just sort of hadn't done it and I was so intimidated by it, but I think it's one of the best things I've done now. So I bring a new staff member in, full inductions on day one, mission statement of the farm, all that, all that stuff that I was doing anyway in corporate work. Um, yeah, applying to the farm. But gee, I found it hard to do. I found that so just intimidated the hell out of me. Just yeah. you felt intimidated that you're doing the wrong thing or didn't have it right. And just getting it down and started was the key and bringing people in to help me with it. Yeah, well, you wouldn't be the only farmer out there that felt intimidated by bringing on these different practices and like the processes to get in place. Once you have them in place, you're sort of set and ready to go and you can react a lot better to... The scenario, if you're bringing someone on for seasonally, even casually, or you're looking yeah. for one worker, how much easier it makes for you? Yeah. And last year, I kind of had a bit of a staff shuffle and recruited and didn't go, it didn't just didn't go smoothly for me, to put it mildly. And I was pretty much on my own, you know, in the sheep yard, 16 hour a day, weaning on a clip X with three dogs and just tweaked the whole race, the whole system. I just tweaked and tweaked and tweaked till that bloody flow. Yeah, just there with the drench gun and the needle, just chink, 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 punch out a thousand a day, and then go around and do all the other farm work. And then you, you know, you bring a new staff member in, inductions. Three or four weeks later, they go or they decide it's not for them. Or it's just that, that was that was um, that really highlighted the strength of bringing in staff, doing it right. Yeah. So I went and got a bit of help on that as well. And, and um, I still don't, I don't think I do it very well yet, but yeah, how to recruit, how to ask the right questions. Yeah. when you bring someone in, empowering them, um, but also, you know, that firmness that you've got to bring in as well and, and that leadership element, not make them a mate. Yeah. Um, I'm a very very chatty, sociable bloke. So, yeah, having that, you know, creating that groundwork and saying, no, look, let's, let's review this and let's talk this through and, yeah. you know, what are you not happy with? What am I not happy with? What are we both happy with? And, um, yeah, I'm learning that skill set. 
it was I don't know if you listened to the podcast match, but Stuart Wesley, we uh I titled it like people and culture on farm. And that was a huge hit end of last year, leading into Christmas when no one really wants to listen to a podcast and I was quite surprised. So there's a huge appetite out there for like the communication to employees, but also us family farms as well. Um, that was huge to see the re- reaction off the back of that and what that is and a little bit of what you just touched on there. Yeah, I've, I've got that there and yeah, went through it and yeah, totally resonated with me as well. And I find when I get together with farmers, the big thing we talk about is staff, retaining staff. And with this new millennium, millennial style generation, you know, that are going to be transient. Yeah, you know, how do you bring them in and let them go again without it super impacting you, but also helping them get the most out of them, plus you get what you need done. Yeah. Um and then yeah, family structures and that sort of stuff. It's it's yeah. When when so when my brother died, he was totally different to me. I was all about the ego of seven generations and land and titles and and all those crude measuring sticks. Um and then when he died, he was the opposite. He was into photography, surfing experiences, winemaking. He just had Christmas in Europe, you know, just traveling, living in a tent, eating horse meat, just having a drink, you know. And I, you know, I was dogging away. And at his funeral, we buried him on the farm. And there's, you know, five or six hundred people in the paddock from all around the world, all walks of life. And I sort of clicked then and looked hard at succession and thought, well, yeah, you know, the if you take care of the people on top of the ground, the rest just follows is sort of what I found in my soul searching couple of years going around meeting and looking and observing people that got succession right, got um, got their growth and wealth strategies right and also had, had good staff and, and good businesses. So going in and asking those questions, it was that was the take home for me. Keep people, you know, take care of people from staff through to family, the whole, everyone, you know, bring them in, make them feel empowered, don't make them feel like shit. Nobody likes feeling like that. Um, and, and ag's so prone to it. You know, we, <laughs> we're a brutal bunch in some ways, but in other ways, we can be the most fun you can ever have. Not out in the town with a pack of farmers. <laughs> 100%. And looking at that way too, like farmers also, we're so busy being busy and we sort of don't have the time to set up these processes up. How did you manage to set that time up to make sure you have a process for your inductions and everything. Like it's just a piece of paper. It could be, or you actually got a bit of a program there. How did you get that time or whatever it may be for you? I decided I had to, um, it was the, you know, the art of not giving you stuff about stuff going wrong out in the paddocks. I kind of developed that ethos a few years ago where it's very easy to go chase that last little bit where it's like, nah, they're there, bugger it. I've got to go get this workflow done. I've got to get bills entered. And so locking out that time to do it, uh, bringing in a consultant as well. So you, you set aside that time, but it's so easy to put it off and you can put it off for a month and then it goes to six and then it's two years later and you just, uh, I should really do that. Um, yeah, locking out that time and being diligent doing it um, is really is something I've learned that I had to do. Like part of my job, I can't work in the business. I've got to work on it. And it's easy to have that mantra. But then why am I working the business flat out? Have I not created workflow or strategies or got machines where my staff can just go work without me? And, um, yeah, I'm getting better at that. Um, yeah, and letting guys build themselves and give them the confidence, but then build those resources around it. So rather than me going out and dogging myself on building a fence, I'll go out and make videos of the knots I like, how I do it, write down a workflow, 
And there's an interesting chap here in Tassie called um, Ram, who's an Indian dude. His, his family were farmers in India where they treated a lot differently. And his father died, left them with a lot of debt. And he knew everything about the business of their plantations. And he kind of came home and went back to India and basically created this great whole ethos, workflow business style approach. And um, he's then put it into ag as well and applied it to that back into back in Tassie. And it's really good. Like I'm, I'm kind of haven't bought, haven't paid his big bill to do it, but I'm, I'm been building a similar system myself and, and seeing other friends and other peers get the benefit out of it helps me set aside that time to do it. It definitely, it, like if you're fencing, you've got, everyone loves and has their own type of putting in a strainer or tying off or something like that. In marketing, there's a product called Loomly and you can leave it for like the, your colleagues that you work with um, to follow that process. Like if it's a bit repetitive sort of work, they can follow that if they need the guidance as well, if you're not there. Have you actually set that up? Yeah, getting there. Yeah. So I've just, again, I've changed staff again. I've just brought a new guy in a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, so inducting them through that process uh, using, so using a Google Doc yep. place instead. I previously had YouTube playlists in particular were very good. Um, and then I just text those through when they're doing those jobs or, or leave links to it. Um, and yeah, trying to create those docs. And my cousin, you know, he showed me how he did it with a sheep handler with one of his staff members showed me the video. And I'm just like, I've got to do this. So I just started creating the videos, um, writing out the documents, and I'm just trying to strategy, get it all into one neat um, centralized Google Doc, hot doc. And um, the new guy that I've got in, he's very familiar with that, with the farm where he's just come from. And so, yeah, together, we're just piecing that together to, to make it work. If you launch something half-assed, um, I'm worried I won't get that take-in on it and utilisation. And just, yeah, so um, we just, we're, we're going to get it done this year. Like, that's our big goal for the year. Yeah. So you don't have to ask questions. You don't have to ring all the time. You can feel empowered that you solved the problem. Yeah, once you get over that glut, that initial, like, Instead of having yeah. the back and forth of, oh, what did that mean? He didn't quite finish it, whatever. There was an episode yeah. in Ag Worlds last year as well about this. Turner Smith actually gave everyone the resources, bought them all an iPad so they could get the Ag Tech on there and actually like giving them the resources and having an iPad in the, in the tractors. A bit of a cool thing if you're a younger worker or anything in agriculture and you can get to tick off what you do or you say this job. I passed a limb that needs to be picked up, sawn off or something in a macadamia farm. And I think those sort of processes are huge just to get past that little barrier of uptake for your staff as well, whether you've got... Yeah. So, so I, I use AgriWeb and I think that was one of the best things I did. I used the task function in that and assigned the task members, particularly feeding out jobs and that sort of stuff. And did the map. Like when you do the map and I went through the gates, I was up to like 435 gates. Like no wonder my guys get confused. I'm like, how do I have so many gates? <laughs> you know, every farm yeah. never wants to swing. But um, yeah, like you can just say, go to this paddock and go to gate 235 and, and leave it open. And all that stuff to streamline all my pipelines in there um, with tap points, where pipes go, where isolation valves are, troughs, weather stations, all that. Is really good, and that's why I want this to feed into my hot dogs style approach. 
And because um, I've done the safe works procedures, but I found no one got on Dropbox and used them. Yeah. So on, on all my safe works procedures are major hazards, um, you know, shut down, clean down, operational, all the all the things there. They're good documents, um, but yeah. And before you use a machine, you get inducted on it. But going back and pulling that document up, just I don't see that interaction. And so a big part of what I do is remote sensing on the farm, like the the ag tech side of it. Um, because I don't live on farm, I don't get that feedback loop um, of the nighttime on the business. And it's taught me I've got to have things that are robust and work. And, you know, the, the other end of the farm is 14 k's away and I've got a 160 hectare pivot down there as well. So another cropping block there, cropping block at the main farm. Yeah. And um, when I'm sitting at one end of the farm, I've got no idea what the other end is doing anyway. So I've built my own Wi-Fi mesh across the property, so sort of 2,000 hectares of Wi-Fi because uh, there's bugger all phone reception but that enables everyone to make video calls. I run cameras on all my pivots, gateways, um, pump sheds, fuel houses. On your main gates, um, I hope. You don't have a camera at all 485, surely? No, not quite that mad, just the key ones where buggers can come in and out. <laughs> we catch them. It's interesting what you see and who's about. That, that helps with security yeah. elements. But just watching irrigators, like particularly these linears, I can lie lie in bed or, or be out at dinner or something and just quickly glance at the camera, see it's in the wheel rut and go, okay, it's good. I can relax again. Whereas if I'm away, you get that anxiety. Where is it? What's it doing? It's going to hit something. And then because I'm quite a tinkerer, you know, I went and made all, made all my linears Wi-Fi control. So I can now control them on the phone and sort of talk to Sparky. I said, I've got an idea. I've got this thing and I've done these antennas and... So if I do this on this wire, well, let's switch that. And I'm, yeah. So then we just, you know, 500 bucks versus a $15,000 bit of tech. Um, we've got automated valves and gates and lots of stuff. Automated lights that I can turn off. You can see the shearing shed lights are on, just on the phone, whack them off. Um, do you have gates in laneways or something that are automated for the sheep? Uh, no, just some key ones that I want to shut around. Um, for, for security and that sort of stuff. And okay. yeah, that's kind of thing. And laneway gates, I've been looking at those electric fences that drop off yeah. um, that you can then fire on a timer. I was looking at making those Wi Fi controlled. I mean, Wi Fi is just great because it's such a high bandwidth. Everyone's phone connects to it. Um, you know, you can stream YouTube while you're plowing late at night or sewing. And, it's just, you know, it makes life a bit more bearable. FaceTime your kids and still work. People can call you everywhere. Because um, that was one problem. You go down the other end of the farm and no one can get hold of them. And you come out and the voicemail pings for about 20 minutes down the road and then the texts are all there and Snapchats and Instagrams. And, <laughs> and Good to see. Well, yeah, she took my question for me, but if there's any others, let us know. What ag tech have you implemented into the farms? You've got... AgriWeb probably as your livestock yeah. and also land task management. Yeah, and cropping management. So all my cropping records, that got that off the Trimble GPS. Um, use Trimble Auto Steer quite quite aggressively. Uh, love that for everything from cultivation, sowing, spraying, a lot. Um, I like that element of it. I use a lot of UAV technology. So I do have a drone company as well doing precision ag work. Um, so we do variable rate. I've got variable rate irrigation. I do variable rate fertilizer applications and, and crop measurements yep. and drainage is the other big one. Um, so I use that that precision egg space quite heavily. Um, the Wi-Fi network, 
is awesome for remote sensing. So that's primarily cameras, um, cameras and switching. So just menial tasks, going out, turning an energizer off or something, you can now do it on your phone. Um, that's great. I've got moisture probes, so I use virus scans. They're great. So 80 centimetre probe every 10 centimetres, I can see temperature and water availability. And I've got those from my irrigation blocks. Um, weather stations as well, good quality, you know, meteorological grade weather stations. I actually do that as a community gesture and let everyone else log in and look at the weather so I can see rainfall around the farm, weather, what's happening, wind, fire danger indexes. How many people um, log into it? You know? uh, there's about 15 or 16 users. Yep. Yeah. Particularly if they're in Hobart and it starts to rain or they're a shack and they think it's going to rain. <laughs> but yeah, and they're in it every day, like using it. So a lot of that weather data is great. So that's again, remote sensing. Um, FarmBot. I really like FarmBot. It's a simple system on water tanks. Um, my old man's always hated water troughs, reckons they're no good um, because he was flood irrigating all summer. So he didn't really need them. Yeah. But yeah, the, the automating that watering system's been magic. So I can watch it on FarmBot, turn it on with my Wi-Fi network, shut the pump off as required. Uh, once it's full and it texts me, I just, just go on the phone, chink, pump off or shut a valve. If I've got a leak, I can isolate various components of it and just say, you know, in the morning I can put a task in say, look, there's a leak below the shearing shed. It's probably this trough. Let's go, you know, we go solve that. Um, that situational awareness is what I'm chasing. Um, what else do I use? I've seen I've, the stories yeah. that you sold her up a fair bit as well and have a bit of a ticker <laughs> on a few. Things. See, it was, it's a lot of stuff. Day, I thought it was pretty cool what you were doing. Yeah, fixing up a camera. So, yeah, security camera just failed. It was like $400 camera. So, just pin it out, figure it out for you know 10 cents a solder, and we're off and going again. Um, I so I got right into the drones right in the beginning in 2011 and then got into drone racing pretty heavily, um, racing little mini quads with the goggles on and looked through it. Um, they had a viral video on YouTube with it, um, sold it to one of those media houses and they got a few million views out of it. I, on auto steer, put the goggles on and fly the drone straight out of the tractor cab, fly around the cab and land back on the roof. That was in like 2013. So it was... That was, <laughs> it was yeah, that's back in the day for drone imagery. Yeah, and so we started mapping... 2012, we got, you know, I went, went and bought a bloke a beer at a uni talk that I knew through my flying and yeah. sort of said, oh, mate, you know, you, you've got your, all the licenses, but you're going to do some ag flying with me. And, um, yeah, Kyle, my business partner, is one of those guys that goes and does it and tinkers. Yeah. So we were we bought 3D printers, CNC machines, built our own drones. Like we built Tesla batteries so we could have, you know, Tesla-style batteries, these lithium, lithium-ion, slow-discharge batteries to fly. So we had multi-copters flying for an hour and a half. Yeah, 2013. We'd get around an 80 hectare pivot circle, get the imagery. We built our own GPS mesh, like our own RTK corrected mesh across Tasmania. So we still use that. But yeah, the, the drone stuff, I've always had a curiosity for electronics, but that just, yeah, you're always fixing stuff when you've got drones. So yeah, build it. And I still use drones a lot. That's the Phantom 4 Pro. I yep. love that. Just the big legs. Um, Mavics are nice, but yeah, the big legs, you can land in the grass, whatever. Um, it's quite crashable. I chase a lot of sheep with it and gather with it quite often. Um, and yeah, going up and just taking photos. Like um, it's interesting in precision ag, you know, precision ag, all you're doing is drawing a line, like a really accurate line around a problem the farmer already knew he had. That's all we're doing. 
but getting them to action it yeah. is the key. Um, yeah, getting that that uptake of it. Like we did uh, thousands of hectares of, of a crop for a company and gave 100 old growers full access to it, like from bare earth right the way through to um, harvest, yield maps, total um, NDVI imagery, the whole lot. And out of 100 and something growers, eight logged in and looked at the data. And the bulk of the stuff they did on it was draw pivot circles. <laughs> they would look at the picture, then drag the map across next door and draw a pivot circle or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting to see the sandbox data on what, what farmers did when they got in that space. And so I consulted on a few fair few precision ag projects. Like our, our company got ahead. Um got ahead because we joined the dots and I got people together and amalgamated and talked through problems and then yeah we can do that we can go drain that paddock so like Kyle let's build a drone photogrammetry what do we need how do we make the model how do we then translate that to a top con system or make a yellow machine do something and we just joined the dots and collaborated and like the first big drainage job I did I kind of thought the guy was taking the piss when he said come map my whole irrigation development and you know, he rings, rings up like five months later, where are you? And I was like, oh, I thought you were joking. That's a big job and a big quote. And then yeah, we did it all. And then it's it got 120 mils of rain. And then the phone rings and I'm like, oh, I've got to answer this. So like, hey, how are you going? And he goes, oh, we love you, mate. Oh, the water. Oh, it's just amazing. It's so good. And I was, yeah, blown out by it, you know. And then it, once you start getting those results and the confidence up, you, you start doing it and, yeah, you know, you go to a farm and the farm hands will call you Jesus because you can send water uphill. And you're like, no, nah, mate, that's downhill, trust me. <laughs> and yeah, put it in tractors, get a rig around it, make it happen. And I enjoyed that space a lot and still do it. Like the guys are on Barrow Island at the moment um, doing magnetic survey, flying seven metres above the ground. They're uh, yeah, in there with the mining company. So we do a lot of mining work, unexploded ordnance detection, um, media as well, movies and and ads and that sort of stuff. It's a, a good industry. I don't do much flying anymore. It's this a lot of like electronic horse racing. <laughs> you need, um, we'll have to do a Farms Vice ad down from Tasmania then. Yeah. So it's fun. Down in Tasmania, you must have 30 hours in your days. We've only got 24 here in New South Wales. Yeah, a lot more daylight because we're further south, you see. Yeah. So we point away from, we point towards the sun more. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bugger for, I punch out the work. Like I set a pace and um, it's probably my downfall in some ways, but also a strength is that, that hyper-focus I've got. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I can juggle stuff. Probably sometimes a detriment of business. That's one thing I've had to learn is say no. So that's why I don't go flying anymore unless it's a really hard job. Um, but yeah, kind of keeping out. And I've learned now I don't do anything unless I'm going to get paid for it because my business is going to suffer. Uh, from boards through to events to, to whatever, I've really had to say, if I want to go do something else, I got asked to, to chair a committee at the moment. The other day I got asked that. And I said, well, it's going to take time. It's, it's only four days. I said, okay, how do I eliminate four days out of something I'm already doing, get rid of four days to do this extra thing? Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. And learning that juggle has helped me find that third, what looks like 30 hours in a day. Um, when I stay at the farm on my own, it is a bad habit where I'll just work. I'll go out the door at seven and finish at 10 or 11 yeah. at night and just, just punch it out. I usually enjoy it. Um, 
but yeah, and then then when I go home, I'm home. That's that's a tricky one. That's hard. Thing though, it is enjoyable. So you don't sort of notice for those that like come in and out or just come newly fresh into the industry. My partner's um, hasn't been in agriculture all the time, and just probably to understand like why haven't you finished past five thirty, yeah. uh, sort of thing, or why we can't go into town right away or whatever. Um, just those sort of understandings, but. Before we wrap it up, because we're good time managers now as farmers, yeah. um, do you think that's a bonus living in town, sort of detaching yourself? Yes and no. I'd love to have the kids up here more. Like we do have a house up here and things that we can stay in. Um, but it has really taught me to build those robust systems. And it's also made me look at the day and go, if I can't get it done in 12 hours with my staff and my resources, what am I doing wrong? Like, I'm doing something wrong. If I can't come in and get my kids ready for bed and stuff and, and then have the night with them and my wife, what what am I doing wrong? Why am I going out and checking an irrigator or something? Can I put a camera on it? Can I put a switch on it? Can I remote sense it? And the fact that, that Hobart element's really taught me that. And also just stuff it. Kids' birthdays, we're going away to Derby. It's, we should be weaning. Let's go, you know. Kids are never going to look at you and say, gee, Dad, I, I wish you had more hectares. I can say, gee, I wish I had more time with you, mate. So, yeah, practice what you preach is always hard. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I get home, not being a grumpy sod, I think it's the hardest challenge when you just know you can nip out after dinner and do it in 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah that's. I think it's a strength for me. Um, as much as I'd love to live on the farm, I don't. So it's the card I'm dealt. I've yeah. made my peace with it. As for that, it looks like you're doing pretty well off the back of it. So... For yourself, throughout your tinkering away at nearly everything under the sun, what would be the best piece of farms advice you've received? Uh, it was that one of basically grow the weeds, eat the weeds, change the weeds. That was the strongest bit of grazing advice I ever got, I think. That's a really original. I've never heard of it. Yeah, um, it might have been Sandy McEachern, I think, told me that one once. And I'd heard it in New Zealand as well. And it... My grandfather kind of pulled me aside and told me all that stuff when I was diversifying heavily um, and into that in that phase, like it was our image. And I yeah, looked at it and I could see what he was saying. He took me through his ledger and, yeah, a couple of peers and mentors and big believer in mentors took me for drives through the farm and they all said the same, look at the potential. You know, it's like, okay, let's just start buying for it, get it on strategically with soil tests, variable rate, whatever. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really resonated with me. Absolutely. And to finish it off, what would be a piece of farms advice you'd like others to take away from this episode? A bit of it. Never be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid to be wrong and be challenged. Don't take that as a threat. Take that as an opportunity to go and learn and build yourself up. Um, yeah, we're all wrong. <laughs> yeah. 100%. And I've learned more so doing this podcast. So put yourself out there, I reckon. It's not a yeah. bad thing at all. Um, so, Will, thank you so much for coming on to Farms Wise Podcast. We'll leave your details up in the show notes, Thought Farm. Um, are you anywhere else other than on Insta? Uh, Insta's the big one that seems to work for me. There's Facebook linked as well, but, um, yeah, Instagram's probably the main site to find me. Twitter doesn't work in my head. Just don't gel on it. I get on there and, I don't know, my brain just doesn't click. I get lost. So, yeah, Insta's the main one. A lot of what I do, I don't put many photos and videos up. I most of do the stories. Yeah. Get, get a few thousand views of those a day. And 
my wife and kids and everyone can know what I'm up to and people get pretty people get a good laugh out of some of my stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. all there all. <laughs> I've seen a bit of humor come through in a few of your activities that you get up to. Um either on farm or off farm. They're pretty good. Yeah. The um it's interesting the cooking. I love my cooking. And that gets huge amount of interactions and traction for content. It's crazy. People start asking so what are you cooking this weekend? But I've always liked my cooking. And that's a bit of a relax for me, a bit of zen time. But, yeah, and you sort of share that. But then the next day you're back in the sheep yards. And, um, yeah, it's just sharing family life. And I think the what's and all side of farming, it's, it's interesting how many people don't quite comprehend the level of commitment we have, the, the, the risk and physical hurt that comes from it, and, and also, yeah, the mental anguish. I mean, I'm pretty open about my mental health that I battle with it. And, um, yeah, those elements of it and the support of it last year was really epic from Instagram and social media. It really connected me. Yeah. made me feel a bit more connected and isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of people are going through similar things in Australian agriculture and we just sort of need to be a bit more open about it and let people in and also let yourself be a bit vulnerable in that. And you have been on the podcast, so appreciate it muchly um, for coming on and sharing your piece of farms with us. Yeah, that's no, my pleasure. Thank you. This Farms Advice episode does not stop here. Come and join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. And even join our Facebook group. Go to farmsadvice.com.au for more on this episode and spread the hashtag Farms Advice to your mates. If you can leave a review on Apple or Spotify, that will let other farmers find us too. But until then, see you next Tuesday. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Farmswise podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people today. <laughs> <laughs>